rest of us this morning are going to continue talking about what we started talking about last Sunday, and that is the fact that theology matters. That theology matters. We're taking a break from our study of the gospel according to Luke. It's normal for us to be working our way through a, bu- through a book of the Bible. And we're going to break from that this morning. My guess is we won't finish quite this morning either. Um, but we will get back to our verse-by-verse study of Luke shortly. This morning we're talking about why theology matters. I had an interesting week this last week, a great week. I was at Twin Lakes Bible Camp with my family, um, teaching the Bible to junior high and high school students and counselors and leaders and just had a great time. And uh, one of the things uh, that I didn't ever say is uh, we, we didn't talk about why theology matters, but I'll have you know that I talk about theology the whole time um, because really so much of what we say in, in one way or another, everything we say about the Bible or about God is theological. And uh, my guess is if I would have surveyed the students afterward and asked them, you know, if theology is really important in their life, um, or maybe if I would have said, you know, did you learn valuable things from the Bible this week? And did you learn this about God? And did you learn that about God? They would have said yes. And then if they would have been asked if theology is really relevant, they would have said no. <laughs> um, it's just kind of how we function, how we think. I talked to one counselor who was, was passionate about the gospel and passionate about the things of the Lord. And, and without saying it exactly like this, he, he basically said to me, but theology doesn't matter. <laughs> And so I was kind and gracious and uh, didn't take the gloves off. Um, I just talked to him about why theology does actually matter. Uh, I just didn't use that exact statement. And before you know it, he's like, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, so much of this is just the, maybe the verbiage we use. Um, it's sometimes out of our own ignorance, um, sometimes because we've heard slogans and we adopt those slogans and we haven't really thought them through. Um, but what we're doing is talking about why it actually really does matter for us. And so I'm going to quickly review the first few that we did, and then we're going to move on. I have a list of 10, but the list seems to be growing. Um, but no, I promise this won't go into the fall. Um, number one, we learned last time and talked about how everyone is a theologian. If you ask someone what they believe about Jesus, even if they say they're not a theologian, as soon as they say anything about Jesus, they reveal they have an idea of God. They, they have convictions about him. And theology is basically just the study of God and his ways. And so if you say, I'm, I don't believe in theology, I'm not really into theology, but I believe Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he died and rose again from the dead. Well, that's a very robust, profound, good theological statement. Congratulations, you're a theologian. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, let's pick on them for a moment because we should. Um, if, they say, uh, if they say, well, we don't believe that Jesus is God, Are they theologians? They're absolutely theologians. They're just not Christian theologians. They're making a statement about who God is. And the list could go on and on. But we all do theology all of the time, whether it's our job or not. Number two, uh, worship is informed and fostered by it. Worship is informed and fostered by it. We looked at Romans 12. We looked at John chapter 4. We worship God in spirit and in truth regarding who Jesus is, who God is, his revelation. And so they're not divorced from one another. They're not enemies. They're actually friends. And your theology, your understanding of who God is, will influence your worship. Even if you don't have much theology, your worship will be affected by that. Or if you have profound theology, it will be. Number three, idolatry is for real. Idolatry is for real. We looked at Old Testament passages and we looked at Romans chapter 1 that there's um, 
this thing called idolatry that God is not pleased with. And when we have unique ideas about who God is, opinions about who God is that don't align with reality, um, it's called idolatry. Um, and that's a theological issue. And so we talked about that as well. We don't want to be idolaters. Um, Deuteronomy 7 has some really strong things to say about that. Number four, it is a moral issue. Theology is a moral issue. We looked at John chapter 8, verses 23 and 24, about believing something that's theologically true about Jesus. And if we don't believe something theologically true about Jesus, uh, then Jesus actually is the one who says, you'll die in your sins. So we really do want to have the right Jesus, and that's a theological issue. Pardon me. Now for new material, number five. Maturity and stability require it. Maturity and stability require theology. If you would like to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, or John chapter 17, or Colossians chapter 1, we'll look at those three passages, primarily Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll talk about stability and maturity requiring a right understanding of who God is. If you're new to the Bible, Ephesians isn't very hard to find. Just look at the beginning of the Bible, look at the table of contents. You can find Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to live a stable life, a maturing Christian life, you've got to have theology. And you've got to have good theology. Uh, if you don't have good theology, you're going to be unstable and immature. But your theology influences your maturity. And we're, we're, we're into this, even if with bad theology, because if you um, are going to pick up a book that talks about if you go without these foods, and if you go without these pleasures... And if you lead this kind of monastic kind of life, then you'll be more mature. Well, that's a, that's a theology. That theology is called asceticism. You don't need to know that for our purposes, but that's definitely a theology. And so when you pick up a book at the bookstore, or you order it from Amazon, or wherever it might be, Christian bookstore even, that's saying, now if you just go without, and you have no pleasure, and you lead this kind of life, that's going to lead to your maturity. That's a theology that's saying it's going to deliver. It's called asceticism. It's not Christian at all. We're not going to take the time to go there right now, but you'll find that Colossians would have you to know that that's not necessary because of what Christ has done. You need Christian theology so you don't get duped and hooked into asceticism, even though the cover on that book is really, really fancy looking and all your friends are reading it. Or you've got Gnosticism. That's a theology that promises maturity. And Gnosticism usually has to do, even if it's not called Gnosticism, it's a secret. It's a special thing. And maybe it's a special experience that I've had. And since you haven't had it, I've got the secret. And if you have my theological secret, then you can go to the next level of maturity. Again, they don't typically brand themselves as Gnostic. But when someone says, I went to heaven and had these experiences and you can't know these things unless you come through my book for 1695. That's Gnosticism. I found out that God is like this. Christians have never known this before. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what Christians have been saying now for thousands of years. But I now know the truth because I had a special experience and you need to have it or you're a have-not... That's theology, promising maturity. It's called Gnosticism. It's a sub-Christian, non-Christian kind of cult. It just looks the same. 
Theology promises maturity, even if it's different kinds. Legalism, we know about legalism. If you do these things, and you keep these laws, and, and maybe you go above and beyond. We know that's what the Bible says, but we want to live by a higher standard because we're Christians. Then you'll be at a higher level. We call that legalism. And Galatians has us to know, no, 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 no. Because Christ is the one who fulfills all in all. We rest in Him. And, and we, we don't need the extra. Theology promises maturity. The problem is, the wrong theology will promise it, but it won't deliver. If you want to be a mature Christian, you need theology. Ephesians chapter 4 is super helpful. Super helpful when it comes to this matter. And I'll read beginning in verse 11. He's talking about life in the church. And he's really talking about theological matters that lead to maturity and not those other things. Uh, Verse 11 says, and he gave, this is Jesus. And Jesus, because he doesn't want us to be immature with bad theology. He gave the apostles. Well, those are guys who teach doctrine, according to the book of Acts, teaching theology. And the prophets, they they speak God's truth, God's revelation, God's theology, if you will. The evangelists, again, related to training and teaching in this case, about promoting a certain kind of theology and the truth about Jesus. The shepherds, they're going to care for you, and we're going to see it has to do with theology. And also teachers, they're going to teach something, and we're going to see they're going to teach doctrine, good doctrine, good theology. And here's why. To equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for the building up. Oh, there's our maturity idea. For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of, notice a theological statement, the faith. The truth about Christ and God and His work and how the Spirit works. And of the knowledge, this is talking about theology, the knowledge of the Son of God. That's, again, theological. And why are we doing this? To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's another maturity word. So that, how about this in verse 14? We may no longer be children, spiritual children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let's stop there just for a second at verse, before verse 15. We need asceticism. We need legalism. We need Gnosticism. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Promising maturity. And we we have something built in us that wants maturity, and that's good and right. Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every wind of theology. Promising maturity and stability and not delivering. So Jesus is kind and gracious enough to give us people, different kinds of people who will teach us doctrine. Not every wind of doctrine, but true doctrine about the Son, about Jesus. They'll teach us theology, and theology brings maturity. It's not all we need, but it necessary brings stability. One of the reasons we're so, so unstable, and we're here and there and everywhere and so unstable, is because we don't have good theology to ground us. It'll cause us to have discernment. We can say, you know what? I know what's true about Jesus, and so therefore I know that that's not true. Well, you're, you're grounded, you're, you're mature, and, and that's what should happen when we're being taught theology. But if I think theology is not practical, I won't teach you theology. I'll just teach you how to live your life and how to grow up as a Christian and be more mature. Notice the contradiction? 
We're here today. I want to teach you about how to grow spiritually, and I want to help you to become more like Jesus, and I want to give you these principles for your life, and because we all know theology just divides and it's not really practical. If I were you, I'd be looking for your keys. Or if I'm, I'm going to tell you about this, what I do in my experience. I'm going to tell you these extra rules and regulations that I've found to be helpful. Look for your keys. Tell me about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done and how the Father has worked in and through his Son and how he's given us his Spirit and how we are made complete in Christ, Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we don't have to concern ourselves with the going without or all these kind of extra things. We're stable. We're mature. That is really going to carry the day. Tell me more about that so I can even be more stable. For the sake of time, I'll just reference it. But complementing this idea would be Jesus' statement in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. Sanctify them, grow them up spiritually. Sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. Oh, how how do we become more sanctified? Well, it has to do with God's word and has to do with the truth of God's word. It's it's about theology. Leads to stability. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 were prayed for by Paul to be increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, it's a prayer for maturity, leading to discernment. Let's go to the next one. Number six, behavior is affected by it. Theology is important because behavior is affected by it. We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, just as a good sample text. Behavior is affected by it. Then we'll look at Ephesians chapter 5. What, what I believe about God and what you believe about God affects our behavior, right? If I don't believe there is a God, that affects my behavior. I'm going to live like there is no God. Behavior is affected. If I think that God is only wrathful and only vengeful, and I use selectivity when I find some select important passages, but select passages, then I'll see God a certain way and I'll act a certain way. If I think that God's only and supreme attribute is niceness, then I'll act a certain way, whether I'm a believer or an unbeliever. If I think God's only attribute is love, which is kind of how we talk, and we'll talk about how important that attribute is, But if I act like it's the only attribute, I'll I'll live a certain way. If I think God is holy and righteous and just and kind and gracious and merciful, and so he said, I'm going to act a certain way. So let's just look at a sampling of how this kind of fleshes itself out. Are we having fun? I hope we are. How weird is it that we're having fun talking about theology? Talk about countercultural. You guys don't look weird. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to kind of flesh this out in a couple of different ways. Maybe picking up that, that supreme attribute of niceness a little bit or, or love, which is kind of where we are in our thinking so much. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's talking to Christians about suffering. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. 
Then the Lord Jesus is re- uh, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believe. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I first chose the passage because it's gloves off. God has more attributes than, than mercy. There's, there's, there's vengefulness, there's righteousness, there's justice, there's consequence from this God who is a God who has a law. Well, a lot of people don't even know that that's the God we're dealing with. So, so they just live however they want to live. Not only that, they see no need for Jesus, who's going to be the law keeper, who absorbs this, this very wrath that is avoided when you believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus and what he's done, because he provides atonement. Or, and, and you want to use the big word, propitiation. He satisfies this very wrath for those who would believe. So if I don't know he's this kind of God, then I don't really know the gospel really has any relevance in my life. But now we can even take it further and talk about us as Christians. Our theology affects our, our, our conduct. Our theology affects our, our living, even in light of a passage like this. Because I'm a Christian trying to do what's right, imperfectly, but trying, and I'm persecuted by unbelievers, and my tendency and desire is to, to, is to retaliate. But my theology from a passage like this, knowing that that God is the one who does that, and God is going to do that when Christ returns, keeps me from being the retaliator. So my theology of the end has me act a certain way in the here and now. And we can look at it from different angles, but there's so many different angles to look at. You know, justice is, is in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But that comes from my theology of the end. If you don't have a theology of the end, you're going to be prone to try to confuse your role with God's role. Because justice should be done, and it's right for you to want justice. But your theology informs you to say, God is going to do that at the end, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Okay. It also helps you answer, you know, well, God, are you, do you really love us? Do you really care? Don't you see us being persecuted? Your theology helps you to answer that question. Rescued by Christ, from Christ. It's theological. I want to look at this from a little bit different angle. And that would be, theology affects our conduct, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Another way that theology affects our conduct is, is when we know what God is like. That's theology. Has anybody been counting this morning how many times I've said the word theology? Sometimes boys and sometimes parents give kids the assignment. All right, write down every time he says, and it's like, anybody doing that today? No. (laughs) Seventeen? 
I know and you know what God is like. And then I have those occasions in Scripture when I'm called to imitate God. I can, by God's grace, as a Christian. And the Bible does that. We're supposed to love one another. Well, it's not just any old kind of love. It's the kind of love that God has shown us. And, and that's a sacrificial love. And that's a love that is undeserving. And if we really have good theology and we keep being reminded of the good theology of how God loves, then we would act very differently than we do. Instead of, well, they don't deserve it. Well, wait a second. We're talking about Christianity here. And that has to do with how God loves. We imitate how He loves. And, and, and that is a theological reality that leads itself to imitation. Christians should do this. Ephesians 5 is super helpful. In verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Now, we could look at other passages that talk more generally about love amongst Christians, but let's just look at husbands right now. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a huge theological statement. And in Ephesians, we learned in chapter 2 that when Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us and when the Father sent the Son, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Children of wrath. Doing the wrong things all of the time. And God loves us. That is tremendously, hugely relevant to our lives. If I believe what Ephesians teaches, that it's a but God. Not when we were deserving, but He did this when we were undeserving. If I really get that theology, then when I'm called as a husband to love my wife, I'm not waiting for her to be lovely. I'm not waiting for her to do all the right things and merit my, my, merit my love, you know. And as a Christian, we should say, that's, that's, that, that's a perversion of... Gospel theology. But if we, if we don't really understand the theology behind it, we're, we're never going to get to the practice. I mean, we're still going to struggle with the practice, right? Until we're glorified. But, but if we don't understand the theology behind it, we're never going to get to the practical side of it. And God help you, and I mean that in all the worst ways, maybe the best ways, I don't know. I, I mean it in slang terms. God help you if you are an Arminian. God help your wife. And what I mean by that is, if you think somehow you initiate, you do something good, and then God does something in response. We all struggle in marriage because it's two sinners living together. That, I'm not saying this is some kind of secret magic bullet and you'll never have any problems. But if you're an Arminian in your theology of salvation, it's no wonder you're having a hard time loving your wife because you're waiting for her to do the right thing and you respond with some sort of reward. It's not it. It's not it at all. Well, theology doesn't really matter. You know, I'm not really into that. And the same applies for the rest of us. God shows us His love. This is on the one another basis too. We can look at other passages. When we're not worthy, 
It's a huge big deal. But I can say this, and then we can walk across the hallway and go to the library and do a little counseling session. And so many times the husband wants to blame the wife, and as soon as she, then I will. And my conclusion is, you don't understand Christian theology. And if you do, then it's even ten times worse. Romans chapter 5, we're God's enemies. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Man, I'm not claiming to arrive in that. But I know that that's what's right and true. And it starts with at least knowing. Jesus didn't wait for us to be worthy to die for us. He died for us when we were unworthy. And here we're supposed to love each other like that. Super helpful. Super helpful. Okay. See, this is a marriage seminar. I mean, in some ways, I want to tell guys who are really having a hard time with this, including myself, I want to say, you know what? I've got a great book on counseling for you. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. That says nothing about marriage. (laughs) That's not altogether right. But let's go back to the basics here. Number seven. Number seven. Methodology. Theology matters because methodology, what we do in our practice, like in evangelism and outreach and things like that, methodology stems from theology. Methodology stems from theology. And now if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Okay, how is Omaha Bible Church going to do evangelism? How are we going to do outreach? Hmm. Well, that's not theological. That just has to do with practical. That's not true. It's not true. Somebody recently said that they, they, they generally speaking, liked our theology at Omaha Bible Church, but... Um, they, they really didn't like our methods. Um, that we needed to make the gospel more attractive. And, and that's a, that comes from a theology. So I'm going to take my ball and go because, well, it's not really a theological issue. It's a methodological issue. And Omaha Bible Church really lacks when it comes to making the Bible attractive. Uh, the word that was used is a different word, but its a synonym is attractive. Another word for it would be, uh, we don't make it sexy enough. Well, I used to be in sales. I know how to make things sexy. I know how to make things attractive. I know how to close the deal. I know how to manipulate people. Hours and hours and hours and hours of training. Charles Grandison Finney. Some people call him the greatest evangelist ever in America. Charles Grandison Finney. A couple of, two, three generations ago, four generations ago. Don't know the date off the top of my head. Charles Grandison Finney invented the altar call. Charles Grandison Finney had the anxious bench up front where people would sit for prolonged periods of time. 
Charles Grand, Grandison Finney believed that regeneration was a human work. He believed that he could save anyone by using the right measures, the new measures, the new methodology. Charles Grandison Finney was the king at making the gospel sexy, attractive. I just want you to know that they, at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, Charles Grandison Finney said, the great majority of my converts are a disgrace to the Christian religion. He did a great job. But he didn't preach the gospel because his methodology was affected by his theology. Oh, by the way, Charles Grandison Finney denied the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus. It's no wonder that he had the methodology that he did. With that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. That's a, a way of saying the gospel. The word of the cross is folly, not sexy, it is folly, not attractive, it is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, this is God here, quoting God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The word of the cross, the gospel, is utter and complete foolishness to people who are perishing. And he goes on, I think it's in chapter 1, verse 24, to talk about the called. Those who God is calling. To, to them, this is good, this is positive, this is, this is our target audience. But the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to know, and the Corinthians seem to be nagging Paul, hey, give us a different methodology. Give us, give us a different shtick. Could you help make the gospel more comely, more sexy, more attractive? And he goes, I want you to know how it worked for you so you don't even get tempted to go there. We believe that God calls. We believe that God is not out to try to manipulate people. As a matter of fact, naturally, they're going to say that is idiotic to think that God's Son, Messiah, would come to earth and be rejected. And then He would be crucified. That's not very powerful. That doesn't give me a lot of power. That's about humility, and I'm a powerful person. And then He was raised from the dead. And you expect us to tell people that and to have them be saved? Give us a better method. And, and Paul is grounding it in theology saying, I'll tell you the method. Preaching, one. And it's preaching Christ crucified, two. That's a theology coming from a theology. That's a methodology coming from a theology that says, God saves. And God saves the called. And God does that through preaching, a la Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so our theology says God does it, we don't. God does it for the called. And so therefore, well, what are we going to do? We're going to preach Christ. And some people we know are going to say, you are an idiot. That doesn't make me feel, feel very empowered at all. I don't think I can invite my sophisticated friends to hear you go on and on and on. What are they going to think? Give us something more palatable. And Paul is in essence saying, my theology won't let me. And your theology shouldn't let you either. Remember your salvation, he says in chapter 1. How, how is it that you became a Christian? 
because of the lighting, because of the, uh, you know, all the manipulation and emotionalism, because it was super cool. No. You're a Christian because God called you and you heard the gospel and you believed it and the person sitting next to you might not have. God saves. I get worked up about this because what we don't want to do is do like Spurgeon said a hundred or so years ago. We don't want to give our lives and our ministry to amusing the goats. That was his question. Are we amusing the goats or are we feeding the sheep? And related to that, are we preaching Christ to everyone knowing that the called, called of God, will respond? Or are we trying to create our own converts and we're going to end up like Finney? Don't get me wrong, I like a lot of people. I'm prideful. I like to be able to say, I led that person to Christ. Wish I could say that more. I want people to be saved. I pray for people's salvation. I'm passionate about it. I make friends with as many unbelievers as I possibly can. I preach the gospel as much as I possibly can. But my theology affects my methodology, and I want that to be true of you too. Acts 13. All those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. Let's just keep giving them the message. The theology and all those who've been appointed unto eternal life, Acts thirteen forty eight, I think it is off the top of my head. They'll believe. They'll believe. Do you get excited about this like I do? Thank you. It's so awesome to know we're not the Holy Spirit. But see, that's theology. It's so awesome to know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That's theology. It's so awesome to know that, that, that depravity is real. And so therefore we can't do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says the natural man cannot understand these things. Yeah, but Paul, this methodology we're following here seems to be one that we're making ourselves clear. We're using language they can understand. Um, we're making sure that the facts are clear and, and forward. And it's almost like they can't even understand us. That's right. Two plus two, plus two is 17. Spiritually speaking, apart from God initiating, God opening eyes. So interesting, Second, First Corinthians 2.14. They cannot understand it. So when you preach the gospel to your friend in a golf cart, or across the cubicle, or via Facebook, or whatever it is, and you're, you're sharing the gospel with them, you just have to know, theologically, you, you have to know, and it'll be super helpful for you to know, they, they can't understand. God has to give them a new heart. God has to take out the heart of stone. He has to give them a new heart. And so that can cause you to stay on target. Your theology will affect your methodology. Because if you manipulate them and emotionalize them, if that's a word, and you get them to sign the dotted line, you have a convert. The problem is, what? They're your convert. They're your convert. So we pray and ask God to work, and we try to make the gospel clear, and we're, 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 we're as faithful as we can possibly be to do those things, and then we sleep, knowing that all those who've been appointed unto eternal life will believe. 
and God will be glorified because God will do it. And we can't boast in ourselves. It's awesome.